Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning. It's good to see you guys here and those watching online. Thank you for tuning in. Let's pause and let's get started uh, for this morning. Got Lydia and the family coming right now, so we'll wait just a second. Otherwise, they'll all come in and go, oh, wait. Shh. Anyway, I hope you guys are doing well. Good morning. Good morning. The kids are over there, Gwen, so that little sad face, like, no, oh, i got to be with these people. <laughs> well, let's pray. Father, once again, we want to put things in perspective. We want to pause and allow the reality of you to permeate the realities that we live in. And Father, even as we are mindful of the situations around us, again, Haiti and the struggles there of dear friends who have lost loved ones and are struggling, of people who are sick and going through various things, Lord, all of these things are a part of our lives and a part of the reality that we live in. And our desire is to have a meaningful role in all of these areas, as well as in our own lives. And so we set this time aside and ask that you would inspire us, breathe life into us, give us vision to move in the complicated world we find ourselves in, in a way that brings life and hope. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Randy, too, and Brian for covering last week. You guys did an amazing job. Thank you, guys. Let's hear it for them, especially a last-minute notice. I think it was about 1.30 Sunday morning when I sent the text out, said, I can't make it. Um, I was trying. Up to like 12 o'clock, I was thinking, maybe. But at 1 o'clock, everything on the inside was trying to get outside of my body, and I said, no, this ain't going to work. So I called, and the guys covered in a pinch and did a great job. Very encouraged by both of you guys. So appreciate that. A few things that we want to announce before we get started. In the years past, we have uh, worked together with Foothill Family Shelter and put together Thanksgiving baskets for different families that are in need. The baskets include a gift card for a turkey, some like traditional Thanksgiving uh, food like stuffing, uh, cranberry, corn, potatoes, all the fixings for like a dinner. 
And we are going to be doing that again this year. And what we are going to do is ask if you would sign up. I have a sign up here on the back table. And we're asking that you do what you can. We are asking for $50 to go towards the basket. Then what we will do is go shopping, get all the things that we need to. And then we will have a basket bonanza. I was trying to figure two Bs to work out. But uh, get together and we will put those together on uh, Sunday, November 6th. I'm not sure what time yet. We'll figure that out. So... If you can commit to helping out, please sign up. If you are online and watching, you can come and sign up here if you want to drive now, um, or you can just message us on any of the social medias or send us an email or call one of us who you know are going to hear and respond to that and let us know. That way we can have definitive how many baskets we are going to commit Two, because we want to let Foothill Family Shelter know we are going to commit to this many baskets. And we've done, gosh, is up to like 40, I think Beth, we were saying in the past. So I'm not going to put a thermometer and say, let's do 40. Um, let's just do what we can. But anything you can provide helps. And so that's taking place. And with that, a reminder too of the needs that are there in Haiti. We have still on our uh, website and want to make aware that there is a constant need to provide for the families in Haiti who are in just a difficult time, uh, to say the least. And so anything you can contribute will go towards providing food for those families of the children that for a reason is caring for in their school system. Um, So please keep those things in mind as we continue to move forward. Also, Mark your calendars for Friday, November 11th. Friday, November 11th, we are going to have another get-together at my house. It's going to be kind of a Thanksgiving theme. Um, I'm going to smoke a turkey. i am already got a bunch of stuff ready. I'm, I'm watching a ton of YouTube videos. It's going to be awesome, I hope. Um, so you can go online again and sign up for the uh, potluck. Let us know what you're going to bring, and you'll see, I think, there what other people are bringing, and that way we can kind of cover our bases there, and hopefully see you guys there Friday night now at 6 p.m. That way we don't have to worry about getting the kids to school, don't have to worry about some of us getting to work, Um, and so hopefully we can just stay and hang out and have a good time, but we want to continue doing these kinds of things. Also, remember that we are here because of your donations, and if you continue to support us, we are appreciative of it. And so those are the ways that you can give online, and if you have any questions about any of these things, again, don't be afraid to reach out and ask, and we'll try and get the answers for you. This past week, I went to an an event that my cousin put on. My cousin years ago started an organization called Learning Rights, where they provide legal rights for children who are not being represented in the public school. It could be children who have disabilities. It could be children who are incarcerated, who have learning disabilities, as well as physical disabilities. And they are there to help these children get an education. And it's turned into quite an event. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) 
I'm better, really. Um, she has since retired. Um, she is a lawyer. She's just working independently. She's still on the board of the organization, but she started it all these years ago. I remember I would go to this place she was staying in Hollywood, and I'd pick up material, and I'd bring it home, and Corrine would put it into these, you know, folders that she was going out to try and get people to start following, you know, what's happening and support it, and now they're renting out the Space Museum in Los Angeles. We had dinner under the shadow of the Space shuttle and you know like the tables are like twenty thousand dollars a table and because I'm her cousin I got in without having to pay twenty thousand dollars but it was quite an event and it was pretty touching to hear some of the things that were being presented there she herself had a learning disability and it wasn't caught when she was going through school until she had a teacher who perceived it and said, I think you have these disabilities. And when she got the help she needed, she was able to become a lawyer and find out so much more to help her in that education. Makes me wonder what could have happened to me if I realized that I wasn't dyslexic and had DDA. Um, You caught it. Um, Okay. But it was beautiful. And one of the things that they had on these chocolate bars, they put their kind of theme there. And it says, our vision is for all children to receive a meaningful and equitable public education, which empowers them to grow into happy, productive, and independent adults. And when I read that, I was thinking of our commitment at for a reason. And even on the website there, it says, help students with financial challenges fulfill their educational promise and become productive members of their communities. And how education is so vital in our world today. And it's something that I think we want to do even here. Something that I desire to do is give us an understanding of our scriptures and and what they represent. I think it was Norman Vincent Peale who said, change your thoughts and you change your world, right? If you see things differently, you can enter into maybe a whole new area that you will find inspiring, that you will find illuminating, that will give you purpose and help you maybe make some sense of the things that you encounter in life. And that's been my desire too. And I thought it was interesting, someone who struggled through school and with education finds themselves doing something along those lines. And it's what I hope to see take place here this morning as well. A couple of weeks ago when I ended, we were talking about how the Lord told Moses that Pharaoh was going to see, that they were going to actually see what it says, like now you will see what the Lord is going to do. And and we talked about how time is the ultimate revealer of God, as what God is doing is something that is revealed over time. And, And today, we're going to cover quite a bit. We're going to cover Exodus chapter 6 through 12. We're going to talk about the plagues, basically. But, of course, we can't cover it all in depth, so I'm going to jump around a bit. But hopefully it will be something that you find interesting and helpful. Start with me in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. 
says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, that may sound familiar, and it should, because that's what God told to Moses back in chapter 3. In fact, Exodus 6, 2 through seven thirteen reads like a repeat of Exodus 3, 1 to 6, 1. In both those sections, for example, God reveals the divine name Yahweh to Moses, which we just read. God announces that he has heard Israel's misery. We see here in verse five and later and earlier, it was chapter three, verses seven through nine. He tells Moses that he is to say to the, what he's to say to the Israelites. So he gives them again, what you're supposed to say is this in both those accounts. And he also tells them what he's supposed to say to Pharaoh. Moses in both of these complains that he is a poor speaker, that he's slow of speech. And literally it means uncircumcised of lips, which is just weird. And that Aaron will be Moses's mouthpiece. So there is a lot of repetition. And in fact, if it wasn't for there, a genealogy that takes place in chapter six, if you were to remove that and just read the chapters three to six and then six through seven, it would be very redundant. It would sound like, haven't we just heard this? Why is he saying it again? And again, there is the thought here that we are hearing different traditions being presented. And it's not trying to make them all smooth. There's a little progression because after this one, God doesn't rebuke Moses for saying, I can't speak. And he says, okay, you're so you know dull here. I'm gonna send Aaron. After this one, he takes it in stride, tells him Aaron's gonna go and do this. And we see that the next time before Pharaoh, Moses has a lot more confidence. So there's a progression that's taking place here. But it's definitely interesting that there are these two versions of the same story that happen side by side. And once again, it's important for us to remember the important was to preserve tradition, not to bring a simple and smooth storyline. But it's interrupted, and it's almost like a commercial. It's like we're talking about the story, and then now a word from our sponsor. And the sponsor here happens to be Aaron and the priesthood. This is brought to you by Aaron and the priesthood. And that's what this genealogy basically is. Up to this point, we see that God has been speaking to Moses. As we just read, God said, the Lord said to Moses. But in verse 13, it reads, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Why bring Aaron into this picture? Well, it helps us transition into the genealogy that we're gonna go to. A few of the names that take place here show up later in scripture. And 
I think it's helping us to prepare for them. Now, if you're like me and you're going through the Bible and you're reading the Bible, you come to a genealogy, I usually look for where it ends so I can continue reading, right? Because all these names, I I don't know what this means, but the writer, the editor put this here for a reason. And so it's important for us to at least look at maybe why it's there. And again, a few of the names show up. The outline begins with the lines of, the lineage of Reuben and Simeon, but it's just really a courtesy. Those just get a couple of lines. Since the genealogies are normally organized according to birth order, Levi is the important son in this particular genealogy. The writer makes haste to get to his line, the priestly line, and tracing it down through Aaron and then to his grandchildren. The priesthood is going to be the central future of Israel, and so he's helping to promote promote it and give it some credentials. In verse 21, we see there's the name Korah, which is Aaron's cousin, and he's going to lead a rebellion against Moses in number 16 that doesn't end well. Aaron's two eldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, are consumed by fire from God in the tabernacle, and their cousins, Mishael and Elsapoth, are told to carry the bodies out in Leviticus 10. His two other sons have more prominent roles. Ithamar will be in charge of the tabernacle construction in chapter 38. And then there's Phineas. Ah, Phineas. The genealogy ends and stops there for a reason. Now, Phineas will later receive these accolades that's gonna be revealed in the book of Numbers, chapter 25. And as the story goes, Phineas sees an Israelite man whose name is Zimri, bringing of all horrors a Midianite woman into his tent, and probably not to play checkers, okay? They go into the tent, Phineas grabs a spear and he drives it through them both at the same time in their stomachs. Hopefully that gives you a picture of the event, okay? Of what's happening. Why? Because the Midianites, even though Moses was married to one, are generally considered very, very bad people. They worshiped Baal of Peor. And Israelites, therefore, are definitely not to have sex with any Midianite woman because that kind of thing would lead to worshiping their gods. But they were. And so Phineas puts an end to this and an end to a plague that wiped out 24,000 of them, according to the writing. And so he's kind of a hero for stopping this plague and making a stand. He, he, he did. And now everyone has another children's story to tell their kids for bedtime. You know, it's so funny. I, when I go back over these things, I remember I was a part of a church that wanted to have a, a curriculum for kids that went through the whole Bible. And I don't think anyone thinks about these kinds of stories when they're doing that. You know, there are some kids who's going to read this story and go, what's going on here? You know, and just kind of have questions as they should. And so there are stories that should not be in children's curriculum. And Phineas is one of them, I think. Anyway, I digress. 
But we see why this list of Levite names is clearly represented and recorded, and most assuredly, it is probably a few hundred years, if not even more, after it's taking place here. In other words, these names are here because they were going to become prominent later on, and so the editor is making sure that we understand this is something that's got God's stamp of approval. You know, Moses was good, but Aaron, he spoke to him too. And Aaron is where we get our priesthood from. So remember that we have this pedigree, so to speak. This is the papers where we come from for our priesthood. And so we see this list of names. It's very important. It's recorded for a few generations. In verse 26 of chapter 26, It makes the main reason for the genealogy clear. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and Aaron. It's almost like, and him, right? I know it's been Moses up to here, but now, remember, there's Aaron. Again, it's being put here for this reason. He's establishing the pedigree. And remember as we move forward that as we get into the plagues, the punishment for Egypt and for Pharaoh is something that is done not just arbitrarily. It is done because of the crimes that were committed. In other words, the punishments that are going to unfold are fit for the crime right? You drowned the children in the Nile and it's going to end with the last plague where the firstborn is killed. And so there is this recompense for what was done. It's not just like, I'm going to show you, I'm going to wipe all. It's no, this is happening because of this. And I think that's important to underline here because it's not just this arbitrary, I'm going to wipe you guys out. I'm going to bring havoc on you. It's no, this is happening because what you have done to my children, the Lord is saying, you wiped out my children. Now I'm going to take care of your children. Now, again, it's very barbaric in its thought, but it still comes to the point. Justice cannot be served until it is dealt with. These things are dealt with. And so the boys confront Pharaoh for a second time. In chapter seven, verse eight, we read, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of the Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing with their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord said. Now, the symbolism seems obvious here, except for Pharaoh apparently didn't get it, that these serpents were no match for this one, that there was going to be an overtaking. But if we're paying attention... Back in chapter four, the Lord told Moses to throw down his staff. But here we see Moses tells Aaron, throws down his staff. And so once again, we see the story broadening. We see probably multiple traditions taking place. 
as it comes out, preserving the tradition of this story is more important than, again, making it all neat and tidy. And now, let the rumble begin. Because now they didn't listen. God gave them a warning. They wouldn't go by it. And so we get to the plagues. And what we're dealing with in the plagues is the power of God in action. There was a phrase that I mentioned at the beginning of this series, and I think it's important to repeat, and it's that of mythicized history. Because when we get to these kinds of events, the questions come up, did this happen? Did this really happen? And you could say, well, yes, it's possible in the abstract for God to turn water to blood, to blot out the sun, to send down hordes of insects. God can do all sorts of out of ordinary things, but just because we can imagine them to have happened by appealing to faith in God doesn't mean they happened. I think the question in front of us is not whether we believe God can work miracles, but whether the story has a historic ring to it. Is there something resonating in here that is true, that is being presented? And answering that question will always be subjective based on your leaning. But any attempt to answer the question, well at least, will mean paying attention to the account's for the actual details of how the story is told. And those details direct the 10 plagues away from history and towards that of being mythicized, at least I think so, and end in an interpretive spectrum. Which brings us to some fun facts about the plagues. First off, how many are there? Well, 10, right? There's 10, we know there's 10. Well, in the books of Exodus, there's 10, but not so elsewhere in the Old Testament. Both Psalms has six, Psalm 78 has six, and Psalm 105 has eight. So there's two other places where we see the plagues on Egypt, but they're different numbers. The number of order and the order of them is varied. They're not the same even with each other. And they don't match some of the plagues. Psalm 78 mentions frost and caterpillars, which I don't know how they made the list, but they're in there, right? And we don't see them here in Exodus, and we don't see them in Psalm 105. The three versions of the same story should at least raise in our minds the question, did it happen as it's written, or is there, again, a story being told, and this is how it was told, and here is how it's being told here, and here is how it's being told here. Now, again, you can try to go to a place, well, we are just, you know, trying to smooth it out and say, well, most of these showed up here, and so they're just leaving some of them out. They didn't want to cover all 10. They just wanted to cover six, and this psalmist wanted to cover eight. And you could try and say just because some are missing doesn't mean they're not there, or just because some are different doesn't mean they didn't take place at all. And again, no one is saying those things. We're just presenting information and trying to deduce what is happening with all this information. And there's also some literary patterns that 
some may find interesting. Now, at this point, some of us, our eyes will glaze over and we will just start to wonder, when will this be over? But because some people are interested, I, I want to cover it just briefly. I'm going to do it with a chart. Gil, could you show that picture up? What we see is three sets of three with a final culmination plus an escalation. We got some scripture at the bottom there. Anyway, what we see in the first cycle of three plagues, we've got blood, frogs, and gnats. And is Pharaoh given into the forewarning? We see, yes, he is with blood. Yes, he is with frogs, but no, he's not with gnats. When is the forewarning given? Well, it's in the morning with plague one, and there's no evidence of when for plagues two and three. And what instruction does God give Moses? Well, first he tells him in plague one, present yourself to Pharaoh. Then he says, go to Pharaoh, and then there's nothing else given. The same thing happens with the second cycle of flies, livestock, and boils. We see the same pattern in each of these three sets. When does he tell them? In the morning, and then there's no sign or time given. And then it's climactic with the death of the firstborn. Because of the consistent literal pattern there, it is thought to be more of a literary compilation than it is a historic one. Does that make sense? That's why it is thought this. Now, I'm not here to try and disprove the Bible. I'm not doing anything like that. I'm just telling you why people see this as interesting and mythicized history because of the variations and because of the literary patterns. Now, there's a lot more that takes place, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but suffice it to say that Yahweh is once again bringing chaos and order into play with very creation itself, as he did back in the beginning when the waters were chaotic and God tamed them and brought forth creation. When the creation then had gone into a chaotic order, God brought the chaotic floods and brought that devastation and then once again brought order. There is this continuing of chaos and order that is seen even through this. And as the plagues come down, once again, they're very concise. This is a rumble between the gods. There is a cosmic battle going on here that needs to be brought up and some troubling questions as well. We see in chapter 12, verse 12, Now, you notice I skipped quite a bit here, so I encourage you to go back and read. But in chapter 12, verse 12, it says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Yahweh sets his sights not on the political power of Egypt, but on the gods that back that power. Now, this passage really only makes sense if we accept that the ancient Israelites assumed that there were many gods among many nations. And to free the Israelites, Yahweh must also subdue the Egyptian gods. That's what you would think if you read this anywhere else in any other literature 
about some religion. You would see these about the gods and you would think, well, obviously they're talking about these gods and this god. But because of our upbringing, our traditions, that ideology has become removed from us. Oh no, there's only one God. The Israelites only believe in one God. But of course, it sounds weird. But if I might say, nobody cares what we think. It's what they thought that matters. It's what they thought these things were that we need to tap into. And these stories were written by and for ancient Israelites who most certainly believed that other gods existed, and that Yahweh was the most high God, right? There's these gods, but Yahweh is above them. You can see Psalm 78, verse 35 and verse 56, the great king above all the gods. In Psalm 95, three, that language means speaking that the Israelites were not monotheistic, they were monolatroes. There's a word I learned this week or last week. They believed in the existence of many gods, but only worshiped one of them. In contrast, it was common for other contemporary nations to worship both a high God and lesser gods in their pantheon of gods. And they even accumulated more gods when they would go to other nations. Oh, you got a God? That's a nice God. I'll take that God into our, yeah. Oh, I like that one. That's pretty cool. We never had a God for that. Let's take that God. And so there was this adaptation of gods as they saw things that were appealing. They would receive these gods into themselves. There are a few exceptions and are possibly an evolution evolution that takes place in scripture. There's Elisha who rebukes the, the priests of Baal and he mocks and says, where is your God? Perhaps he's on the toilet. Maybe he can't hear. And some will say that he believes there is no God there. And so he's doing that. That's possible. Or he is bringing out again that our God does things. Your God is impotent, can't. There's also Isaiah who says, are there any gods before me? I don't see any. I don't know of any. And so there is a change, but think of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's very different than no other gods exist except me. And we read it that way because of our prejudice leading into it. But there's a number of passages that lead us to believe that the Israelites believed in many gods, but they were commanded to worship just the one. Which again, many of us will find troubling based on our, how we've been brought up and what's going on. Now, before we get too high-minded and think, you know, we know that there's no other gods, it would be important for us to remember that our terminology for things like believe and faith have probably varied a lot from what theirs were. We think of, oh, I believe in something as just I think about it. But belief for them was something that you participated in. It was how you lived your life. Jesus would say you cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't believe in both. 
See what I'm saying? It's not that you can't think there's two. It's you can't live into both of them. And so the question comes up, what do we really believe in? Because what do we give our lives to? And we are challenged by the things that we spend our money on, the things that we spend our time on, how we devote ourselves to things shows us really what we believe. And I would present the idea that we probably believe in other gods too. We just think of that term God as meaning some kind of deity instead of something that we live our lives into. For them, that wasn't as big a disconnect. For them, the gods that they believed in were also the lives they lived into and put their practice into by doing things, offering things, rituals, those kinds of things. That showed their belief in that God. It wasn't that I don't think there's another God or I do think there's another God. It was I lived into this way of life and that was their belief. And if we step back, we can ask the question, what is our belief by what are we living into? What is our trust? What are the things that we put in higher regard? And that'll show perhaps what we believe and perhaps show what our gods are. Does that make sense? A little challenge for us, a little something that I just kind of had to wrestle with myself and deal with this to make sense of it. And so quickly, there, there's a short Yahweh versus the gods of Egypt thing going on, right? There is the plague on the Nile along with all the waters in Egypt in chapter seven, verse 19. And it's turned into blood, making the water undrinkable and it puts the God happy, H-A-P-I, the Nile deity in a tough spot because Yahweh just took over what Hopi was supposed to be in charge of. And then there's frogs. The second plague is a multiplication of frogs, which again, isn't just random. The Egyptian goddess of fertility, Hecate, was depicted with the head of a frog. Okay, come on, you guys, stay with me here. I know, it seems strange. The issue at hand in the second plague is whether Hecate or Yahweh controls fertility, which is a big thing in the ancient world. That produces power, that produces success, fertility of people and of livestock. The first two plagues are a hard one-two punch, right, at the heart of the Egyptians' existence. And this no-name god, whom Pharaoh has never heard of, who lives in the wilderness and whose worshipers have been enslaved for centuries, marches into Pharaoh's territory and wrecks havoc. Yahweh is in control of the deities that sustain Egypt and keep it populated. That's what's being presented here. And then the last two plagues, we've got the sun, the god Ra, it's blotted out, and it just so happens, you know, that again, Yahweh is in charge, not your God, Ra. And the final plague is death. Who controls it? Not Osiris, not the Egyptian God of the dead, but Yahweh. And the last plague proves it. Now, I don't believe, and I don't think you do either, that there are gods that control various segments of nature, but the ancient Israelites lived in a world that most certainly did. 
And this would have been like an MMA fight for them. This would have been a cage match. Telling this story, everyone would have been around the fire listening, eating popcorn or lentils, whatever they ate, you know, for to eat. Just riveted to these things because it was the battle of these gods. And they were presented with all sorts of opportunities to worship these other gods throughout their lives because they were everywhere in all these different cultures. And like everyone else did, they just thought, well, yeah, they do, so why wouldn't we? Again, we often get caught up on focusing or obsessing over the historical accuracy of the stories or the plagues, but these stories were shaped by a world that accepted the reality of an active and populated divine realm. Remember, this is an ancient, diverse writing. It's ambiguous, too. It's got all these different levels to it. However much we might be unable to accept it or even be offended at it, the mythic nature of these stories is precisely the mythic content that they would have spoken so loudly to the ancient people. It was the reason it was the way it was is because it resonated to the people who were listening to it. Now, I had to do a little takeaway with this, a little so what? What does that mean to me? About eight years ago, a family member uh, was out of state and was going through a psychotic breakdown. And we were in contact with them and trying to help them through just what was going on. Uh, They were supposed to be going back to work, um, but they kept having problems, and so they needed a place to stay. And so Karina and I were finding motels that they could stay out until they could get to work the next week, and we were providing money so they could have food and and things that they need until they could get back to work. In reality, what would happen is they were going through a mental breakdown because of a traumatic event that had happened. He had found out that his wife was having an affair and totally lost it. And so he was spiraling deeper into drugs and deeper out of touch with reality because of the drugs, lack of sleep and all, lack of eating, all these things just played into what was going on. And we couldn't keep sinking money into this. It's like we knew something's going on. He's not sounding right. We keep getting these stories that aren't making sense. And so I flew out there to try and find out what was going on, to meet with him and say what's really happening and to let him know, hey, you know, why don't you just come back with us, stay with us, recover, get healthy. I flew out there and it was October 31st, I remember. Landed and he was very upset that I was even there, right? Like, what are you here for? You don't need to check up on me. I'm fine. It's like, you're not fine. We can't keep doing this. I need to see what's going on and and kind of confronting him with the whole situation that had been happening. And as I am confronting with him, you know, I'm I'm driving with him and in the back of his truck under the, the camper shell is just everything that he brought with him from his house, but it's just in shambles. It's just rolling around in the back of the truck. There's a giant screen TV that's just shattered. It, it was just a mess. It was just heartbreaking 
to see what, all the things that were going on. And, and finally, I, I tell him, listen, let's drive back to California. Come on, I'll drive you back. We get back there, get some help and get you know, some rest and just reestablish some things. And he definitively says, no, I'm not going back. Apologizes, I'm sorry, but I, I'm not going back. And he had a party to go to that night. So he didn't even want to stay at a motel. You could stay with me at the motel because I know you need a place. But he was going to just be partying that night. And so he didn't have anything else to say. And so at that point, I call Corrine and I said, he's not coming back. I'm going to stay at the hotel. I go back to the hotel. I book my flight to get back home. And I go to sleep thinking, that's it. I don't know what's going to happen. It's probably the end of our interaction and relationship with him. I get a phone call like one in the morning and it's a collect call from this person who's in jail. And they start to talk, but the phone cuts out. Just enough to let me know that this person is in this jail system. I don't even know what jail it is. Will you accept? Because they gave me the name, but I don't know. I'm in a different state. I don't know what jail it is. I don't even know what the jails are around me here. So Kareen, I call her up. I say, hey, he's in jail. Let's see if we can find him. Sure enough, we find out he's in this jail. He, and we make plans to at least find out, well, can I meet? When does he get out? Do we know? We don't even know why he's in jail, right? We just go there waiting, waiting, waiting. Something interesting happens. I end up meeting him out of jail. And what happened is he had gotten in an accident and it was a pretty serious accident. His truck was a mess. All the stuff in his truck was everywhere. It was just thrown outside the truck. And he could not drive that truck. It was just devastated. He had no money. He had nothing to do. And so he had to come back with me. He had no choice. It was forced. And it's what he needed. And the reason I bring this story up is because you don't get collect calls on a cell phone unless you have some kind of subscription or plan with the phone company. Otherwise, you can't make a collect call to somebody's phone, cell phone. If I was in jail, I couldn't call John up and say, John, <laughs> buddy, um, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't go through. But this one did. At this moment, just for the second, enough to put this wheel in motion to make it happen. Now, I don't know how phone systems work, and I don't know what happened to make this thing go, but I do know that we were praying for him so that we could bring him out of this situation and bring him home, and I know that it happened in a very mysterious way. And as much as I could try to rationalize it and figure all these things out, there's something going on, something that happens, something divine that takes place, and it feels bigger than life when it happens. It, it, it makes you awake to things that maybe you're normally sleeping to. 
And you see, these stories are being written to awake a nation to the voices that were all around them saying so many different things that they were to follow a different voice. And whether historically accurate or mythicized, these stories were meant to tell them something is going on. And this is how we're presenting it. I don't know how things happen, why miracles happen, why sometimes they don't, why some people don't get rescued. And some people do. I don't know how to answer the questions of, well, could this have happened? Could it not have happened? I don't know. All I know is that there's something, there's more going on than what we are aware of. We see this much of a picture that is this big. And I don't want to close my eyes to everything just because of my understanding limitations. I want to be open to a God who is big and I don't want to be blind to what is happening at the same time. And I think we can hold them both. I think I can see a mythicized history and see a divine intervention and live in that mystery. At least that's what I'm trying to do. And I hope you guys can do it too. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these stories would provoke us to thought, to not blindly just assume things and not just totally reject things, but to lean into them with curiosity and wonder and allow through them things to filter into us. And for us to be mindful of the mystery we live in, the world that has the miraculous happening all the time that maybe we are unable to name or even see because of familiarity or lack of understanding. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide us, whatever that looks like in whatever ways that shows up, to help bring understanding of how we can live today in the world that we find ourselves in with the the various beliefs that are around us and to understand what it means to worship the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that it is also to love our neighbor as ourself. May we dance with this in a way that produces life. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I can't wait to look forward to talking about this with you guys. Um, May you understand what you believe in, what it is to worship the God you believe in. And may that God bring you freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. 
we invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.